welcome to the Sick of the Beatles episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. And I'm also here with Vipal Monga of the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Vipal. Hi, guys. You have been crushing it. You are, what, the, the full-time Canadian, everything Canadian person at the Journal. Canada correspondent, yes. The Canada Canada correspondent, like the journal will put, will have many people covering many things, and then it has like you covering Canada. That's like you know. We actually have three people here. Some great <laughs> great colleagues of mine are here too. You wrote a great piece about oil sands in Canada. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Canadian house prices. What's going on there? But really, we brought you on to talk about the Beatles, which is your favorite band. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Enough. Enough <laughs> with that. Those guys. Enough with those guys. They're, they've been around for too long, and there's got to be something better. Um, Vipal's controversial opinions on Get Back, the documentary, and the Beatles, um, coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oil prices are in the news. Oil leases are in the news. Um, the big news is that oil prices are high because the entire world basically can't produce enough of it to meet demand. The federal government, which came into office claiming that it would ban all drilling on federal lands, ended up being forced by courts to allow drilling in, in federal seas, I guess I should say. That's now been put on hold by another court in in dc um the one place that drilling is happening at stronger and bigger quantities than ever is vipal alberta canada alberta canada the oil sands so tell me and and this is particularly filthy oil uh it is been called the dirtiest oil in the world uh, it releases more carbon, is more carbon intensive than any other oil that's uh, pulled out of the ground. And another wonderful story, that, which we will link to in the show notes, talks about Shell, which has operations up there, tried to do a carbon capture plant, but everyone's kind of skeptical about that. Like when oil is this dirty, it's hard to counteract or countermand or capture the emissions, right? Right. And it's question of what you're releasing in the air, carbon versus methane, and methane's the, the real problem. Not to mention just the physical environmental impact where you just destroy an entire landscape. Right. Uh, about the oil sands, uh, I talked to one environmentalist who called it the most uh, visible scar uh, on the surface of the earth, which a little bit of a hyperbole, but it's pretty ugly up there. This is one of those things which, like, you know, you can see from the moon, yeah, can you, when people say oil sands, in my uneducated mind, I picture a beach that's oily. <laughs> Literally, what does the oil sands look like? <laughs> right. You're not too far from the truth. So uh, 
the oil sand deposit in Alberta is basically made up of bitumen, which is like a thick, really viscous oil. It's kind of like asphalt. They make asphalt from it. There's so much of it that it bubbles to the surface. So you do see it on the ground. Uh, you'll see a lot of aerial shots of the region. The ground is black where there's puddles, is black oily puddles. That's what it looks like. If like in, in a previous episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies, we we covered There Will Be Blood, and there's that scene in There Will Be Blood where he goes out into the California desert and there's like a puddle of oil, and it's basically like that. Right. Yeah. It's there's a lot of it and uh, uh it's always been there. And then bigger picture, what I thought was interesting about your piece is that the the bigger oil companies, the more established ones, are sort of getting out of the oil sands extra of, of the business in Alberta because it's so um it's considered so dirty and reputationally it's kind of bad. But that's not stopping oil drilling. Like it's still going on. Um and I feel like that's what's gonna happen everywhere, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? So when Shell says they're gonna leave the oil sands or sell their assets in the oil sands. It's not like they're shutting off the spigot and walking away after closing down the plant. They're selling them. They're, they're selling them to uh, Canadian companies who become by far the, the biggest owners in the region. And they they're keep they keep drilling. I mean, they have every incentive because they make a lot of money doing it. And uh, they're drilling more than ever. So to ask like the, the basic question, let's say that I am an environmentalist and I pressure shell to get out of dirty oil sands production and they do um and then they just end up selling that dirty oil sands production to someone else like is that in any way a victory for me well i guess the question is short term versus long term what's been happening is investment in the oil sands has been dropping so in the short term drilling continues and they are pulling a lot of oil out of the ground, more than ever before, at 3.8 million barrels a day uh, this year. Um, but over the long term, because they're not investing in it, they're not creating new oil fields. They're not drilling new wells. So what you would expect, we haven't seen it yet, but what you would expect is in the next 10, 20 years, some of these older wells will start to dry up and you won't have new ones to replace them. So longer term, they should. Um, you know, kind of going to runoff, which would be a victory if it happens, but I'm not sure it will. So I have a question about that, which is when you measure, when you talk about investment, um, are you talking about external investment where um, companies issue bonds or companies issue equity and they raise money and they use that money to drill new wells? Because it strikes me that if drilling oil in Alberta is as profitable as it seems, then you don't need to raise money from banks or shareholders. You can just take your profits and use those to um, to drill new wells, and that wouldn't show up in investment figures. Well, they do look at uh, capital expenditure numbers in, in Alberta, and that's kind of what we're using to measure that that investment. But what's been happening is that the money that the oil companies are making, and they're making a lot of it, they're just funneling it back to shareholders, dividends, special dividends, buybacks. Uh, there's been a lot of that activity happening. So they're just giving so, it back. So the question is, like, if, if these 
small Canadian companies that most people have never heard of, or small-ish Canadian companies that never nobody's ever heard of, are doing so well in the oil sands. Why are they dividending their profits back to shareholders instead of plowing them back into this very profitable business that they're quite good at? And this is where the environmentalists seem to be uh, winning a little bit because the uh, expectation is that producing oil is going to get more and more expensive over time because of the carbon tax that Canada has instituted, which is going to be ratcheting up to something like $130 a ton. Um, and um, because uh, the uh, oil companies are expecting demand to start uh, decreasing over time. So because of that, and it takes you know, five, six years to get a new oil field up and running, they don't think it's worth their while to put the new money in unless there's uh, some sense that the uh, demand's going to increase enough to justify the investment. So it seems like we're in this very painful transition from um, into to a more green world that's less reliant on oil. But for right now, oil prices are really, really high. And that's presenting all kinds of of problems, like politically, like you see the Biden administration struggling, like what Felix talked about in the introduction, where Biden came in saying, like, we're going to be more green, and then oil prices going up and Biden being like, we're going to make gas prices go down. And it's like, you can't, you can't have it all on oil here. Like, if we're going to make this transition, like, prices are going to stay high because no one's going to want to invest the money to make to get more oil out of the ground and and you know what I mean like so the prices are going to stay elevated for a while and that's going to really piss people off. So the real problem everyone's having the world's having is that they haven't really or we haven't really found a source of energy that's as efficient as oil. You can pull it out of the ground relatively easily. Uh, it gives you a lot of energy. Uh, it's very dirty. Obviously, it's really bad. But um, solar, wind, or the other forms that we might have to replace them just aren't as efficient. Um, so how are you going to fuel the power needs? And people really haven't been upfront or haven't politically been able to make the case that in order to get to this net zero objective, you're going to have to sacrifice a lot of the stuff you take for granted. Um, are people willing to do that is a big question. And, you know, the real... Uh, extremists, I guess, if you will, the radicals say, of course, I mean, we're talking about the future of humanity here. We should give up, you know, your one day shipping from Amazon. But can you make that case to most people? And uh, so far, the answer has been no, you can't. So then what where, do you where, do? Where, does, where does Canadian public opinion stand on this? Um, I think it's in line with what most of the world is. They, they agree that this is a uh, bad thing that's happening. Climate change needs to be stopped and there should be some curbs. Uh, but I don't, I haven't seen much polling that suggests that they're willing to um, reduce their standard of living in order to get there. And that's really what um, what's being asked of people um, if we're going to be realistic about it. I mean, you know, we live pretty well these days, really comfortably. Uh, are we willing to suffer a little bit to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? I mean, those are actions that have to be taken on like a policy level. Like people aren't going to be like, yeah, I'll pay more for gas and give up one day shipping. But Amazon could say, we're not doing it anymore. Um, 
Or the Biden administration could say, okay, the federal government's going to eat the increased gas costs or something. Like, there are things that could be done at the policy level to make it possible for, for this transition to be less painful, but it seems like that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, there's a political will question. There's doesn't seem to be the political will, really. And w- in places where there are, I mean, people are struggling. Look at what Europe is going through with, you know, their energy prices this winter um, and all uh, you know, the issues that occurred in Texas when the power grid almost went down. I mean, things like that really scare people. Um, and there's a lot of nuance as to what actually is happening in those areas, but no one's paying attention to the nuance. All they see is uh, green energy means uh, more danger, more in- more energy insecurity, and we don't want that. Um, so if you're a political, how do you make the clear, simple argument that you really need to sell these um, one um, tool that can be used is the carbon tax. And uh, I think a lot of people are hoping that governments institute that to make it more economically painful for these companies to keep drilling. Um, and so far, not many countries have really instituted a strong one. Canada's on its way. but So so a carbon tax is coming. I mean, in Europe, carbon is what, like $30, $40 a ton right now? And you're saying in Canada, it's going to go up to like three or four times that? Yeah. I mean, it's going to ratchet up slowly and and it will go up to triple what it is now, basically, or, or quadruple. And then, you know, what companies are trying to do is reduce the pain of that by investing in um, technologies, which will sort of, you know, solve this whole issue like carbon capture, which, you know, there's a lot of uh, doubt about how efficient that actually is or whether it really works. Um, you know, and it's almost like, we're all scrambling, looking for this magic bullet that'll help solve all our greenhouse gas problems without forcing us to make painful decisions about the way we live. Um, and maybe we're in the denial phase at this point if we're looking at. How but the but stuff. the big picture that that I'm getting from you is that in terms of pollution, in terms of emissions, there's a pretty good chance that we're at the worst point right now in terms of the oil sands and that it it is going to get better over the next five ten years and that like it looks really bad right now but there is a some kind of light at the end of the tunnel if you just look at things like capex yes if you do and we're talking 10 15 years not 5 10 so it's a little bit of a longer time frame but yeah that's the that's a optimistic scenario the uh cynics would say that things like carbon capture are going to be used to continue to uh, allow the oil sands companies to drill even more. Because one of the ways people will be using the carbon will be to drill even more oil. And we might see that come up. Uh, and, you know, if you look at companies like, I think it's ConocoPhillips that, um, I can't remember which one actually, that uh, basically says two degree warming is a fool's errand we're going to overshoot that, uh, completely overshoot that. So we're not even going to try to uh, reduce our emissions because it's, you know, it's ridiculous what you're asking people to do. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. 
subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. I, w- I want to segue here into a little discussion of the Canadian property market, which is actually related because... Canada is one of those countries which kind of benefits from global warming, right? Like if you if you have property in Toronto or Vancouver, suddenly that looks kind of increasingly relatively attractive in a world that's burning up. And Canadian property is mixed my metaphors horribly here on fire right now, crazy expensive. Um, and the one thing that Canadians love to sort of moan about the most, right? It is pretty much unaffordable if you're a first-time home buyer to buy a home in Canada right now. I mean, home prices have uh, basically risen without stopping for the past 20 years or so. There's been nothing like the 2008 crash that we saw in the U.S. to sort of tamp down home prices. Um, And yeah, I mean, there's not enough supply in this market at all to feed the demand, and demand keeps increasing. So you're just looking at the basics there. yeah, it's crazy, crazy expensive. What, talk about the the supply, supply and demand dynamics. Is the demand coming from people who are like running away from future global warming and they're wanting to get a safe space in Canada? Uh, Canada has really been emphasizing immigration as a way to sort of keep growing its economy. Um, last year, Canada uh, welcomed 400,000 immigrants or gave them permanent resident status, which is Canada's version of the green card, um, which is the most ever. Uh, the U.S., by contrast, and I only have the 2019 numbers, only gave, gave out something like a million uh, green cards um, in 2019. Um, remember, the U.S. is about 10 times the size of uh, of Canada. So, you know, per capita, or I guess the relative basis, Canada is welcomed a lot of immigrants. Why they're coming, we don't know um, exactly. Um but all of them want houses. So that is a big portion of uh, the demand. There's also a lot of investment coming into Canada, just people buying into this crazy housing market in order to flip them and make money. So is Canada having the same kind of demand issues in the real estate market as we're having in the US? Like the pandemic really pushed a lot of people to move, driving up prices kind of everywhere in weird places and driving down supply like to an insane degree. Or is it really more the immigration lever that's pushing demand? 
so demand has been persistent in Canada, um, but there we uh, the, uh, we have seen uh, people leaving places like Toronto. I think this was the first year that Toronto saw uh, net negative migration into the city. Uh, places like Vancouver are losing people too, so people are moving out, and you are starting to see home prices rise in suburbs. You know, uh, out like an hour, two hours outside of Toronto. Uh, even in places like the Maritimes near Halifax. Um, so this uh, contagion, if you will, of rising home prices is increasing beyond the, the major urban centers. Uh, but again, there's been sort of like, if you look at the slope, there's been like a unabated rise, like a st and, and the st slope is steepening in terms of house prices in Canada. So it's really concerning for people who want to buy a home. So I, I have... Two questions, but let me start with with the first big one, which is um, why is there seemingly no supply? Well, what's the supply problem? Is it the same as in California? It's all NIMBYs, or is it more structural? A uh, lot of NIMBYism. Uh, it's just a lot harder. I mean, the bureaucratic apparatus in Canada is you know much more unwieldy than it is in the U.S. So there's uh, provincial rules, municipal rules, just harder to get stuff built. In Canada, for example, they've built an area around the city called the Green Belt, which is kind of like a boundary meant to stop sprawl. Uh, a lot of um, buildings in Toronto are pretty short, like two or three stories. You don't see a lot of mid-rise buildings, so there's it's not very dense as a city. So things like that have limited uh, growth and uh uh, home building. A lot of people like single family homes um, and it's harder to build those, uh, harder to, um, and more expensive now, especially if you look at things like lumber prices, which have been going crazy. Because of Canadian problems, Paul, right? A lot of flooding and such. Uh, yeah, Canadian problems. That's <laughs> well, they've limited, I mean, the, the whole timber thing is a whole different thing, but, um, but yeah, Canada has a lot to do with why lumber is so expensive. Blame Canada. It, the, the bigger question I had is about the worries here because, and I've seen this in California, I've seen this in New Zealand, I've seen this in Canada, I've seen this in London, wherever you see house prices go up. Um, on the one hand, people are saying, this is really bad. Everything has become unaffordable. No one can afford to live here anymore. It destroys communities. It destroys the soul of neighborhoods. But on the other hand, people become incredibly fearful of house prices going down. Like, it's unclear whether they actually want house prices to go down because people are so invested in their homes. They have so much equity in their homes, especially if they've bought recently. They certainly don't want to be underwater on their mortgages. And so it, it seems that people can't, like the, the polis, the population as a whole, can't decide whether it wants prices to come down or not. It goes back to that thing we're talking about. In energy, you, house prices coming down would be broadly good for young people who want to you know, uh, sort of create wealth, have a home to live in. But in order to get there, some people are going to have to absorb some pain. You know, And it's in Canada, for example, a lot of the home buying is coming from what they call investors. So it's not just the Blackstones and the private equity firms snapping up, you know, whole neighborhoods and renting them out. It's also people, baby boomers who already own a home and are buying another house or a condo to rent it out and make money off that. There's a lot of those people. Are they willing to absorb the shock 
And no, they're not. I mean, uh, so th- there's a lot of fear about uh, a plunge. Have rents been going up as fast as prices or is it still like possible to find affordable rents? Rents are, I mean, they're going up quite a bit. Um, Toronto is very, it's insanely expensive uh, to live here. Um, rentals are comparable to New York uh, without all the benefits of being a New Yorker, frankly. <laughs> but, but, uh, but um, um, so yeah, I mean, there's a housing crisis. You know, they, they keep hitting home the fact that there's a crisis Canada-wide in terms of housing. My colleague at, at Axios and I were talking about this, the lament of there are no homes to buy, like you can't get a house anymore argument. And he was saying, and I'm, I'm going to float this here right now, debut it. Um, people are too picky. Like you can't find a house in Park Slope. Homes are not affordable anymore. And it's like, well, actually Park Slope's quite expensive. Like you could find a house if you go farther out into Brooklyn or farther out into Queens. Like, yeah, you might not be able to live in the most desirable neighborhood anymore because it's extremely expensive, but home buyers need to sort of like chill and buy houses they can afford and neighborhoods maybe they don't that maybe they believe aren't as desirable, but if more people move to them, it all works out anyway. So instead of forcing people to eat a lower home value, you just force people into homes with lower values. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a sort of like mindset. So, so there is a, there is a ratchet. There, there is a ratchet effect here. I think if you look at the United States in particular, and this goes for everywhere, whether it's out in the middle of nowhere or like in the middle of city centers, the number of square feet per person has been going up steadily for decades and it conti- and there's no sign of that changing that yeah people want more space and i think this is one of the big effects of the pandemic is that people want much more space post pandemic because work because home isn't just somewhere you live it's also somewhere you work and that desire for more space like you know sure that like the price per square foot will go down in less convenient neighborhoods or whatever but if the number of square feet per person goes up, you don't need any immigration at all for demand to start exceeding supply because the supply is measured in square feet, right? Add in a little bit of immigration or natural population growth and just the entire market starts becoming very, very, um, let's just say bullish for the people who like property prices going up. Like It just becomes structurally very hard to avoid prices going up. That is not the dynamic that we're seeing in Toronto. In Toronto, house prices are, um, I think the technical term is uh, cuckoo bananas. There, <laughs> there, you can buy like a, a, homes that are in dire need of renovation. Basically, gut renovation homes are selling for multiples of asking price. I mean. Worse, you know, there are constantly stories of people of lines around the corner for homes, you know, people standing around in the dead of winter to buy homes, which, you know, are not particularly desirable. And we're not talking about like, uh, you know, Rexdale uh, or uh, other neighborhoods that are maybe, quote unquote, less desirable. It's, how do I say it? It's hysterical, I think, is the, the behavior we're seeing of, of buyers here because there is nothing else to buy. 
And there was definitely that kind of hysteria in the United States last year. I, it seems to have maybe anecdotally died down a little bit. Like a lot of the people who are desperate to buy a home um, probably ended up buying one somehow. And, and maybe it's less his hysterical right now. But house prices are still going up. House price inflation is still going up. And it all comes down on some level, I think, to to this very American thing. And I'm interested in whether it's a Canadian thing. I think it is that like home ownership is considered a necessity that like people really, really need to own their homes. And they're like, I need to move somewhere. I need to buy somewhere. It's the same thing. And and that is complicating matters. It's, you know, it's the opposite of somewhere like Germany, where home ownership is kind of weird. And like, why would you want to own a place? The um, head of the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation, which is a government-backed uh, home insurer, Evan Sedal, former head, uh, made that very argument. He said, why do people need to buy? What's wrong with renting? I mean, renting might be a better use of your uh, money than paying a mortgage and, and all the risks that that entails. So there's a, a pretty significant section of the uh, population that's starting to buy into that a little bit. But of course, rents are also increasing. Uh, so it's getting tougher on both ends. I mean, in a high inflation environment, it's better to own a home than to rent. Rents are going up like crazy there's lots of inflation. My mortgage payment is the same every month. You know, it's only going down, basically. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I want to move on to the music industry because Vipal, you are my my favorite music nerd in the world. And I want to ask you about a statistic that came across our desks this week saying that 70% of all music being played right now is old, where old is defined as more than 18 months old, but that counts as old in the hot pop music world and i've been talking to a few friends about this and it does seem to be like anecdotally that music fresh music new music isn't this cultural force that it used to be while 
old music from like even like 30, 40 years ago, Genesis just announced a tour and it's selling out and they're like number four on the Bloomberg top artists chart. Old music is doing well. All of the septuagenarians like Bruce Ringstein and Bob Dylan are selling their catalogs for a gazillion dollars because old music seems to be this perfect, this license to print money, which is going to last forever. What is going on? I get, everyone's competing with the Beatles or the police. Um, if you're a new band... Getting people to listen to your fresh sounds, just getting harder and harder because the old guys are not going away. They live in perpetuity, have been granted immortality through like the streaming services, which wasn't the case a few years ago when you would go into the record store to have, buy music or depend on the radio play to, to get access. Uh, you know, the new bands would. Uh, push out the old guys, and uh, it's—I think it's terrible for new music. Uh, what's happening? But was it ever thus? Like when when we had physical media, when people used to buy LPs and CDs, did they used to actually listen to their old, you know, Genesis and Police CDs all the time? But that wouldn't show up in the statistics because they weren't buying those CDs new. They'd owned those CDs for years, and they just kept on listening to them. But now. With streaming, we're beginning to realize just how much people are listening to old music in the way that we never realized before. Maybe it, maybe it isn't that new of a phenomenon? It's not, but the economic model is relatively new. It, it used to be that people would listen to their white album CD or physical graffiti or whatever a um, hundred times or whatever, but then they would still go out and buy new CDs, uh, which would create a revenue stream, a pretty strong revenue stream for new artists. Uh, that is drying up. And I think that's the real problem for the, the industry. I think Felix has a, has a good point. I hadn't thought about it like this, but like, I remember when CDs first came out <laughs> and everyone had to convert from tapes to CDs and everyone rebought all the same old music they already had. And that drove a lot of CD sales. And it's kind of like, if you think about that, it's not then surprising that old music drives streaming. Of course, people aren't going to just stop listening to old stuff because new stuff came out. And then you combine that with pandemic trends. Like I, I, I emailed with the people who did this survey um, or compiled this this number that Felix was talking about, the 70%. And um, the pandemic drove a lot of this as well. Like more old people started doing streaming in the during, you know, when we were all stuck at home, there was like a, a big migration of boomers and Gen X to streaming in a way that hadn't quite gotten there before. So they pushed up the numbers. Um, and then the other thing that was sort of interesting is... Um, a lot of concerts didn't happen in 2021 because of pandemic. So some new releases got pushed back and then that also like tipped the scales in favor of the old, of the old stuff. So I broke the rule and I made like three points in talking. Um, so pick it up where you, where you might. <laughs> You're allowed to, to you, you can break the rule as, as, as much <laughs> as you like, Emily. Well, to look at it this way. Look, once you bought a CD or a record, you had it forever and you could listen to it for ultimate infinite times. Basically, you paid money for the right to listen to it forever. Uh, the record company had an incentive to have you buy new physical media because that's how they made music. So they would promote new artists. You would hear Prince, even though you've been listening to Marvin Gaye for years. All of a sudden, there's this new guy, Prince, you should listen to him, buy his records. So they had an incentive to promote the new flavor. Now all that incentive is gone. They have uh, contracts with Spotify, where they will get paid, 
I guess depending on, on the nature of the contract, uh, by streams. And it doesn't matter whether people are listening to uh, the Beatles or Kanye uh, or you know Frank Ocean or what have you. Um, they're, they don't really have much incentive uh, to push new artists or put the um, capital expenditure, if you will, into new promotion because they'll make just as much money with people listening to things they already know. So I think that is 100% compelling as as an argument and a reason that, you know, it's up to the record labels and the record made labels make just as much money from Genesis as they do from Dua Lipa. So why would you prefer one to the other? But I do need to ask you, people, because you are, you know, the music nerd, is it the case that there has been a fracturing of pop music and that there is just it's not culturally relevant in the way that it used to be no one cares that the grammys got pushed back i you know no one really knows even who the top artists are like i pulled the billboard top 10 for this week from this week and 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago and this week you know we have some weird lin-manuel miranda song from an animated movie and we have glass animals who i have to admit i've never heard of and gunner and gail and jessica darrow and who are these people and then you go back 10 years and it's like okay then you start thinking oh there you have people like you know who are real pop stars there's rihanna there's adele there's bruno mars there's Katy perry there's jay-z go back 20 years and you know, it's Mary J. Blige, it's Alicia Keys. Go back 30 years and get this, the pop chart from this week, 30 years ago. It's like George Michael, um, Prince, Mariah Carey, Nirvana, Michael Jackson, U2, right? It's a whole, it's like, is it just because I'm old? Or is it, or is there something much more lasting about those artists? You kind of feel like U2 is going to last much longer than Florida, right? I think it's a, a lot of it has to do with how we listen to music. Um, I, frankly, I avoid streaming services. I still buy music. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. But I, I do it specifically because I think that if you're engaged in what you're putting on, if you're making the choice yourself, there's more of an emotional investment. And it, there was a time when music was like, defined you, who you were. Now the algorithm plays in the background without you really engaging with it physically at all, just playing music, a lot of it just becomes background noise. And I think a lot of the music reflects that and our attachment to the music is, is part of that uh, or it lessened because of it. Not to mention album covers. Like when you, when, you, when you physically take out album covers and you're looking at them and like you're, you're physically handling an artist in a way that like the, the brand recognition for artists is just not the same these days. I mean, it's changed and it, I don't think... There, I don't think it's good or bad. It's just the way things went. The technology kind of has moved things in, in that direction. It makes me a little sad. I mean, uh, I can't remember the last song that everyone was talking about that changed things. You know, I was watching a documentary recently about Prince and, you know, people's reaction, like when Dove's Cry came out and how that was like an explosion just because people hadn't really heard sounds like that before. And it just changed the way people reacted to music or what they expected from music and you don't see much of that these days and i don't know if the environment is conducive to that if, if it can happen is it just because there's like more old music than there was 30 years ago like when i was growing up rock and roll was still kind of not new but like 
there's just more old stuff that people listen to than like maybe in the 80s. You only went back 20, 30 years. Now we're in the 2020s and there's just like many more years of good music that still sounds pretty good. And I wondered, and maybe this is a leap and so Felix can answer, but like old art is like really valuable. So why wouldn't old music still be really valuable and cherished and listened to in the same kind of way? It's a really good question. And like when I was growing up in a very weird sort of family, the overwhelming majority of music I listened to was like really old. It was Bach and Mozart, you know, and um and yeah, if and when you grow up in a in a classical music household like I did, the the idea that there would be any kind of recency bias in what you listen to, and you're like, oh no, let's put something on by Harrison Birtwistle, you know, like no, because like no, no that that people are biased against new music, um, and and yeah, for most of human history it has been the case that people revere the stuff that has stood the test of time more than the stuff that is fresh and new. And it's always been like, it really dates back to kind of, I guess, like Elvis and then the Beatles that created these, these popular culture phenomena where suddenly they like what was fresh and new became the thing that everyone cared about. And maybe you're right. Maybe people are going back to like, we now have so many decades of amazing music to listen to. Um, Why would we listen to some, why would we, you know, invest in learning about, um, I don't know, Olivia Rodrigo when you can listen to Nirvana. I, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, although I will say that in the fine art market, <laughs> I, was just, I just saw a statistic that's saying at auction, the total auction sales of artists under the age of 40 have now exceeded in dollar value the total auction sales of old masters from like over a period of like 600 years. Well, if you think about it, 50 years ago, the Beatles had just broken up. So if you go back 50 years, we're talking about the end of the era of the Beatles. If if you were in 1969 listening to music and you went back 50 years, you'd be going back to 1919. Yes, I mean, the, that is what I'm saying. The, that's exactly your point. <laughs> Perfect. But, but God damn it, I'm sick of the Beatles. I'm tired <laughs> of hearing about this band that is really no longer relevant to what's going on right now. I mean, they make great music, yes. But do we need to watch a 100-hour documentary about them doodling in the studio? We don't. Did you watch it, Vipo? Uh, I watched the one clip of Get Back when Paul McCartney uh, made And I watched a little bit of the Billy Preston stuff because he's awesome. But, um, but really, I don't... I listen to a Beatles song and it says nothing to me right now. It's like the analogy I use is like, they're like water. Water's great. You need it to live. Awesome. But let's stop talking about water because it's boring. I'd rather <laughs> like some flavor in my drink. Um, and I'm much more intrigued or interested by what Megan Thee Stallion is doing than what the Beatles did 50 years ago. Uh, or what salt the band is doing because they're talking about things that are happening today and now and it's just much more relevant to I guess our common experience and I think that that's a part of what music used to bring and did bring to people in the 60s that uh, maybe we're missing now just you know stuff that talks about what's going on today and how we relate to this moment um and you know Eleanor Rigby I'm sure it will will always be remembered as a great tune, but uh, I'm not sure um, 
it deserves to crowd out everything else that's going on. And it is. It's, it's terrible. <sighs> on, on which note, we will get a million emails of people writing in to slatemoney at slate.com saying, how can you possibly compare Megan Thee Stallion to the Beatles? Um, we will forward them all to you and you can answer them. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, She's awesome. I love her. Yeah. Let's let's have a numbers round. Um Emily, did you did you have a number this week? Yeah, I have a number. Um my number is 54%. That is the increase in hot sauce sales globally since 2015 to 5 billion dollars. I read a great story in Bloomberg Business Week about um the spice company McCormick and hot sauce and all the ways the business is kind of changing and how the pandemic fueled McCormick's spice business and their supply chain woes. They source their spices in 80 countries. And there's also a whole thing about McCormick buying the number three hot sauce maker in the U.S., which is a hot sauce called Cholula, which has this like cute little wooden top and a lady on it, but was owned by a private equity company in Connecticut, um, which I think is funny. And um, <laughs> of course <yeah>. it was. <laughs> oh my god! Like the fact that Cholula was owned by a private equity company in in Connecticut is is like that is the most sleep money thing I've heard all week. There you go. But now it's owned by McCormick. Have you watched those videos where people sit around and try different hot sauces and see what their hot sauce tolerance is? Yeah, there's oh, that yeah, YouTube the, show. The Wings guy. Yeah. So good and weird. So strange. Brilliant marketing. He's very Brilliant. deadpan and he makes the the celebrity eat the hot sauce and then ask these like very whatever questions while the celebrity kind of just sweats. Yeah, it's good stuff. We should do Slate Money like that. <laughs> my, my number is $152.5 billion, which is a profits number. It's the total profits of the big six American banks in 2021. It is by far a record high that it's double what they made in 2020 it's just an absolutely astonishing amount of money for that would be the two big investment banks goldman sachs and morgan stanley and the four big commercial banks um jp morgan wells fargo bank of america and Citibank. um between them i think every single one of them made record profits last year um and i'll just throw in a sort of extra number in here which is a hundred billion dollars it looks like Apple made $100 billion, give or take a few cents, um, in 2021. This was an absolutely astonishing year for profits. Uh, my number is $9.2 which is how much McKinsey expects the world will have to spend every year between now and 2050 for us to hit the net zero 2050 target. That's on things like infrastructure, reducing emissions. That's approximately a tenth, more than a tenth of global GDP. And what are we spending right now? Uh, we are spending about six and a half trillion. So about a third less. So we need to up that by about 50%. Yeah. yeah. All right, get we on need it, to put people. Some of those bank profits to build, use. Build more, build more nuclear power plants. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want to see more nukes. New York State became very, very dirty overnight in terms of its energy mix the minute that they closed down the Indian Point power station. There was a lovely moment here last year when uh, the, the Pickering power plant, nuclear power plant outside of Toronto, sent out an emergency alert by mistake saying that uh, there was a, um, basically... 
implying that there was a meltdown happening at Pickering Power Plant. That oh, was God. really great to get first thing in the morning on a Saturday. Yeah. What, what, what did you do? How did you react? Uh, I, I kind of just shrugged my shoulders and said, oh, well, here it comes. <laughs> Turned up the music. There, there, what, there was no airborne toxic event? <laughs> no, no. All right. I think that's it for us this week. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment about fintech because there's been a bunch of news about Wealthfront and Robinhood and those kind of folks. So we're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. But other than that, thanks for listening to Slate Money. Vipal Monga, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And yeah, thanks to Shana Roth for managing to once again pull this show together we will be back next week on Slate Money This is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.